Chapter 5 The Year of Public Favor After the year spent in the South, Jesus shifted the sphere of his activity to the north part of the country. In Galilee, he would be able to address himself to minds that were not affected by the preconceptions and arrogant pride of Judea, where the religious and educated classes had their headquarters. Jesus might hope that if his doctrine and influence took a deep hold in one part of the country, even though it was remote from the center of authority, he could return to the south backed with an irresistible national acknowledgement, and could then carry by storm even the citadel of prejudice itself. Galilee The area of Jesus' activity for the next 18 months was very limited. The entire land of Israel was a very limited country. Its length was a hundred miles less than that of Scotland, and its breadth was considerably less than the average breadth of Scotland. It is important to remember this because it helps us understand the swiftness with which the movement of Jesus spread over the land and how all parts of the country flocked to his ministry. It is interesting to remember it as an illustration of the fact that the nations that have contributed most to the civilization of the world have, during the period of their true greatness, been confined to very small territories. Rome was only a single city, and Greece was a very small country. Galilee was the most northerly of the four provinces into which Israel was divided. It was 60 miles long and 30 miles wide, and consisted for the most part of an elevated plateau, whose surface was varied by irregular mountain masses. Near its eastern boundary, it abruptly drops down into a great gulf through which flowed the Jordan River. In the midst of the province of Galilee, at a depth of 500 feet below the Mediterranean, lay the lovely harp-shaped Sea of Galilee. The whole province was very fertile, and the province was densely covered with large villages and towns. The population was about as dense as that of Lancashire, or the west riding of Yorkshire. The center of activity was the basin of the lake, a sheet of water 13 miles long by 6 miles wide. Above its eastern shore, around which ran a fringe of green a quarter of a mile wide, there towered high, bare hills that had been cut with the channels of torrents. On the western side, the mountains were gently sloped and their sides richly cultivated, bearing splendid crops of every description. At the foot of the mountains, the shore was green and rich with luxuriant groves of olives, oranges, figs, and every product of an almost tropical climate. At the northern end of the lake, the space between the water and the mountains was broadened by the delta of the river, and it was watered with many streams from the hills. It was a perfect paradise of fertility and beauty. It was called the Plain of Gennesaret, and even at this day, when the whole basin of the lake is little better than a parched desert, it is still covered with magnificent cornfields wherever the hand of cultivation touches it. Where idleness leaves it untended, it is overspread with thick jungles of thorn and oleander. In our Lord's time, it contained the main cities on the lake, such as Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. But the whole shore was dotted with towns and villages, 
and together it formed a perfect beehive of swarming human life. The means of existence were abundant in the crops and fruits of every description that the fields yielded so richly. The waters of the lake were filled with fish, providing employment to thousands of fishermen. Besides, the great highways from Egypt to Damascus and from Phoenicia to the Euphrates passed through here and made this a vast center of traffic. Thousands of boats for fishing, transport, and pleasure moved to and fro on the surface of the lake. The whole region was a focus of energy and prosperity. The report of the miracles that Jesus had performed at Jerusalem eight months earlier had been brought home to Galilee by the pilgrims who had been south at the feast. And doubtless also the news of his preaching and baptism in Judea had created talk and excitement before he arrived. Accordingly, the Galileans were in some measure prepared to receive him when he returned to their midst. One of the first places he visited was Nazareth, the home of his childhood and youth. He appeared there one Sabbath in the synagogue, and being now known as a preacher, he was invited to read the scriptures and address the congregation. He read a passage from Isaiah, in which a glowing description is given of the coming and work of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Luke 4, 18-19, quoted from Isaiah 61, 1-2. As Jesus commented on this text, picturing the features of the messianic time, such as emancipating the slave, enriching the poor, and healing the diseased, their curiosity at hearing for the first time a young preacher who had been brought up among them turned into spellbound wonder, and they burst into the applause that used to be allowed in the Jewish synagogues. Soon, though, the reaction came. Matthew thirteen fifty-five to 58 They began to whisper, Was not this the carpenter who had worked among them? Had not his father and mother been their neighbors? Were not his sisters married in the town? Their envy was excited. When Jesus proceeded to tell them that the prophecy that he had read was fulfilled in himself, they broke out into angry scorn. They demanded of him a sign like they had heard he had given in Jerusalem. When he informed them that he could do no miracle among the unbelieving, they rushed against him in a storm of jealousy and wrath. Hurrying him out of the synagogue to a cliff behind the town, they would have thrown him over the cliff if he had not miraculously taken himself away from them. Luke 4:28-30. He prevented them from crowning their proverbial wickedness with an act that would have robbed Jerusalem of her corrupt fame of being the murderess of the Messiah. From that day forward, Nazareth was no longer his home. In his tender love for his old neighbors, he visited it once more but with no better result. From this day forward, he made his home in Capernaum, which is on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This town has completely vanished out of existence, 
Its precise location cannot now be identified with any certainty. This might be one reason why it is not connected in the Christian mind with the life of Jesus in the same prominent way as Bethlehem, where he was born, Nazareth, where he was brought up, or Jerusalem, where he died. We should, though, fix it in our memories side by side with these, for it was his home for 18 of the most important months of his life. It is called his own city, and he was asked for tribute or tax in it as a citizen of the place. Matthew 17, 24-27 It was thoroughly well adapted to be the center of his labors in Galilee, for it was the focus of the busy life in the basin of the lake, and it was conveniently situated for journeys to all parts of the province. Whatever happened there was quickly heard of in all the regions round about. In Capernaum, then, Jesus began his Galilean work. For many months, Capernaum was his headquarter, from which he traveled in all directions to visit the towns and villages of Galilee. Sometimes his journey would be inland, away to the west. At other times it would be a tour of the villages on the lake, or a visit to the country on its eastern side. He had a boat that waited on him and was used to take him wherever he needed to go. He would come back to Capernaum, sometimes only for a day, and sometimes for a week or two at a time. In a few weeks, the whole province was ringing with his name. He was the topic of conversation in every boat on the lake, and in every house in the whole region. People's minds were stirred with great excitement, and everyone desired to see him. Crowds began to gather around him. The crowds grew larger and larger. They multiplied to thousands and tens of thousands. They followed him wherever he went. The news spread far and wide beyond Galilee, bringing people from Jerusalem, Judea, and Perea, and even from Idumea in the far south, and from Tyre and Sidon in the far north. Sometimes he could not stay in any town because the crowds blocked the streets and crowded one another. Jesus had to take them out to the fields and deserts. The country was stirred from end to end, and Galilee was all on fire with excitement about him. How was it that he produced such a great and widespread movement? It was not by declaring himself the Messiah. That would indeed have caused to pass through every Jewish heart the deepest thrill that it could experience. Although Jesus occasionally revealed himself as at Nazareth, in general he preferred to conceal who he was. No doubt the reason for this was that among the excited crowds of rude Galilee, with their blatant materialistic hopes, the declaration would have excited a revolutionary rising against the Roman government that would have withdrawn people's minds from his true goals and would have brought the Roman sword down upon his head just as in Judea it would have brought about a murderous attack on his life by the Jewish authorities. For various reasons, the full revelation of himself was concealed until the right moment for making it known would come. In the meantime, he would let it be inferred from his character and work who he was. The two great methods that Jesus used in his work, and which created such attention and enthusiasm, were his miracles 
and his preaching. The Miracle Worker It was likely his miracles that excited the most far-reaching attention. We are told how the news of the first one that he worked in Capernaum spread like wildfire through the town, bringing crowds around the house where he was. Whenever he performed a new miracle of extraordinary character, the excitement grew intense and the news of it spread all over the land. For example, when Jesus first cured leprosy, the most malignant form of bodily disease in Israel, the amazement of the people knew no limit. It was the same when he first overcame a case of demon possession. When he raised the widow's son to life at Nain, there was a sort of amazed fear, followed by delighted wonder and the talk of thousands of people. Luke seven eleven to 17 For a time, all Galilee was in motion with the gathering of the diseased of every description who could walk or hobble to be near him as well as with groups of concerned friends who carried those who could not come on their own. The streets of the villages and towns were lined with the victims of disease as the gracious Jesus passed by. Sometimes he had so many to attend to that he could not even find time to eat. At one point he was so absorbed in his benevolent work and so carried along with the resulting holy excitement that his relatives, with coarse indiscretion, attempted to interfere, saying to each other that he was beside himself. Mark 3.21 The miracles of Jesus, taken all together, were of two classes, those that were performed on people and those that were performed in the realm of external nature, such as turning water into wine, calming the storm, and multiplying the loaves. The former were by far the more numerous. They consisted mainly of cures of disease more or less malignant, such as lameness, blindness, deafness, palsy, leprosy, and so forth. Jesus appears to have varied his methods of healing very much, for reasons that we cannot explain. Sometimes he used methods such as a touch, laying moistened clay on the part, or ordering the patient to wash in water. At other times, he healed without any means, and occasionally even at a distance. Besides these bodily cures, he dealt with the diseases of the mind. These seem to have been particularly prevalent in Israel at the time, and they excited intense fear. They were believed to be accompanied by the entrance of demons into the miserable person or delirious victim, and this idea was only too true. The man whom Jesus cured among the tombs in the country of the Gadarenes was a frightful example of this type of disease, and the picture of him sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind shows what effect his kind, soothing, and authoritative presence had on minds so troubled. Mark 5, 2-20, and Luke 8, 26-39. The most extraordinary miracles, though, were those that Jesus performed upon man when he raised the dead to life. They were not frequent, but whenever they occurred, they naturally produced an overwhelming impression. For example, in Matthew 9, 18-26, Mark 5, 22-43, Luke 7, 11-17, and John 11, 
1-46. The miracles of the other class, those of an external nature, were of the same unexplainable kind. Some of his cures of mental disease, if standing by themselves, might be accounted for by the influence of a powerful nature on a troubled mind. In the same way, some of his bodily cures might be accounted for by his influencing the body through the mind. However, a miracle such as walking on the stormy sea, Mark 6, 48-49, is completely beyond the reach of natural explanation. Why did Jesus choose to work miracles? Several answers could be given to this question. First, he worked miracles because his Father gave him these signs as proof that he had sent him. Many of the Old Testament prophets had received the same authentication of their mission, and although John the Baptist, who revived the prophetic function, did not work any miracles, as the Gospels inform us with the most simple sincerity. John 10:41. It was to be expected that he, who was a far greater prophet than the greatest who went before him, would show even greater signs than any of them of his divine mission. It was an astounding claim that he made on people's faith when he announced himself as the Messiah, and it would have been unreasonable to expect it to be acknowledged by a nation accustomed to miracles as the signs of a divine mission, if he had not performed any. Secondly, the miracles of Christ were the natural outflow of the divine fullness that dwelt in him. God was in him, and his human nature was endowed with the Holy Spirit without measure. It was natural, when such a being was in the world, that mighty works would manifest themselves in him. He was himself the great miracle, and his specific miracles were merely sparks or emanations. He was the great interruption of the order of nature, or rather, he was a new element that had entered into the order of nature to enrich and dignify it. And his miracles entered with him, not to disturb, but to repair its harmony. Therefore, all his miracles bore the stamp of his character. They were not mere demonstrations of power, but were also demonstrations of holiness, wisdom, and love. The Jews often sought immense signs from him merely to gratify their thirst for the sensational. Jesus always refused them, though, working only such miracles that were beneficial to faith. He demanded faith in all those whom he cured, and never responded to curiosity or unbelieving challenges to demonstrate his power. This distinguishes his miracles from those fabled of ancient wonder workers and medieval saints. The miracles of Jesus were marked by constant seriousness and benevolence, because they were expressions of his character as a whole. Thirdly, his miracles were symbols of his spiritual and saving work. It is only necessary to consider them for a moment to see that they were, as a whole, triumphs over the misery of the world. Mankind is the prey of a thousand evils, and even the frame of external nature bears the mark of some past catastrophe. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain. Romans 8.22 This huge mess of physical evil in the fate of mankind 
is the effect of sin. Not every disease and misfortune can be traced to a particular sin, but some of them can. The consequences of past sins are distributed in detail over the whole human race. Yet the misery of the world is the shadow of its sin. Material and moral evil, being closely related, mutually explain each other. When Jesus healed bodily blindness, it was a type of the healing of the inner eye. When he raised the dead, he was suggesting that he was the resurrection and the life in the spiritual world as well. When he cleansed the leper, his triumph spoke of victory over the leprosy of sin. When he multiplied the loaves, he followed the miracle by speaking about the bread of life. When he calmed the storm, it was an assurance that he could speak peace to the troubled conscience. His miracles were a natural and essential part of his messianic work. They were an excellent way to make him known to the nation. They bound those whom he cured to him with strong ties of gratitude. Without any doubt, in many cases, faith in him as a miracle worker led to a higher faith. This is how it was in the case of his devoted follower, Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven devils. Mark 16:9. This work must have brought both great pain and great joy to Jesus. To his tender and lovely sympathetic heart that never grew insensitive in the least degree, it must often have been heartbreaking to mingle with so much disease and see the awful effects of sin. He was in the right place, though, for it suited his great love to be where help was needed. What a joy it must have been to him to distribute blessings on every hand, to erase the traces of sin, to see health returning beneath his touch to meet the joyous and grateful glances of the opening eyes, to hear the blessings of mothers and sisters as he restored their loved ones to their arms, and to see the light of love and welcome in the faces of the poor as he entered their towns and villages. He drank deeply from the well at which he wanted his followers to always be drinking, the delight of doing good. The Teacher the other great instrument with which Jesus did his work was his teaching. It was by far the more important of the two. His miracles were only the bell that rang to bring the people to hear his words. They made an impression upon those who might not yet be susceptible to the more delicate influence, and the miracles brought them within its range. The miracles probably made the most noise but his preaching also spread his fame far and wide. There is no power whose attraction is more unfailing than that of the eloquent word. Barbarians listening to their poets and storytellers, Greeks listening to the restrained passion of their orators, and matter-of-fact nations like the Roman nation have alike acknowledged the irresistible power of the eloquent word. The Jews valued it above almost every other attraction, and among the figures of their mighty dead, they revered none more highly than the prophets, those eloquent proclaimers of the truth whom heaven had sent them from age to age. Though John the Baptist did no miracles, multitudes gathered to him because they recognized the thunder of this power in the way he spoke. 
which for so many generations no Jewish ear had listened to. Jesus also was recognized as a prophet, and accordingly his preaching created widespread excitement. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Luke 4.15 His words were heard with wonder and amazement. Sometimes the multitude on the shore of the lake crowded so near to him to hear that he had to enter into a ship and speak to them from the deck as they spread themselves out in a semicircle on the ascending shore. His enemies themselves bore witness that never man spake like this man. John 7:46. As few as the remains are of his preaching that we possess, they are fully sufficient to make us echo the sentiment and understand the impression that he produced. All his words together that have been preserved for us would not take up more space in print than a half dozen ordinary sermons. Yet it is not too much to say that they are the most precious literary heritage of the human race. His words, like his miracles, were expressions of himself, and every one of them has in it something of the grandeur of his character. The form of the preaching of Jesus was essentially Jewish. The Eastern mind does not work in the same way as the mind of the West. Our thinking and speaking, when at their best, are fluent, broad, and closely reasoned. The kind of speech that we admire is one that takes up an important subject, divides it into different branches, deals thoroughly with each point, shows clearly how the points relate to each other, and closes with a moving appeal to the feelings so as to sway the will to some practical result. The mind of the East, though, loves to meditate long on a single point, to turn it around and around to gather up all the truth around it in one focal point, and to pour it forth in a few clear and memorable words. It is concise, succinct, and wise. A Western speaker's discourse is a systematic structure, or like a chain, in which link is firmly knit to link. An Oriental's is like the sky at night, full of innumerable burning points, shining forth from a dark background. This was the form of the teaching of Jesus. It consisted of numerous sayings, every one of which contained the greatest possible amount of truth in the smallest possible space, and it was expressed in language so concise and pointed as to stick in the memory like an arrow. As you read and consider them, you will find that each one of them draws the mind in and in like a whirlpool, until it is lost in the depths. You will find, too, that there are very few of them that you do not know by heart. They have found their way into the memory of Christendom, as no other words have done. Even before the meaning has been absorbed, the perfect proverb-like expression lodges itself firmly in the mind. There was also another characteristic of the form of Jesus' teaching. It was full of figures of speech. He taught in images. He had always been a loving and accurate observer of nature around him, such as of the colors of the flowers, the ways of the birds, the growth of the trees, and the changes of the seasons. He was an equally skilled observer of the ways of men in all parts of life, 
in religion, in business, and in the home. The result was that he didn't speak without the form of some natural image. His preaching was alive with such references, and therefore full of color, movement, and changing forms. There were no abstract statements in it, for they were all changed into pictures. Thus, in his sayings, we can still see the aspects of the country and the life of the time as in a panorama. We see the lilies, whose gorgeous beauty his eyes feasted on, waving in the fields. We see the sheep following the shepherd, the broad and narrow city gates, the young women with their lamps waiting in the darkness for the bridal procession, the Pharisee with his broad phylacteries, and the publican with his bent head at prayer together in the temple, the rich man seated in his palace at a feast, and the beggar lying at his gate with the dogs licking his sores, and a hundred other pictures that reveal the inner and detailed life of the time, over which history in general sweeps heedlessly with majestic stride. The most characteristic form of speech he made use of was the parable. It was a combination of the two qualities already mentioned, the concise, memorable expression and a figurative style. It took an incident from common life and rounded it into a gem-like picture in order to set forth some corresponding truth in the higher and spiritual realm. It was a favored Jewish mode of expressing truth but Jesus gave it by far the richest and most perfect development. About one-third of all his sayings that have been preserved to us consists of parables. This shows how they stuck in the memory. In the same way, the hearers of the sermons of any preacher will probably, after a few years, remember the sermon illustrations far better than anything else in the sermon. These parables have remained in the memory of all generations since. The Prodigal Son, Luke fifteen eleven to thirty two, the Sower, Matthew thirteen three to nine, the Ten Virgins, Matthew twenty five one to thirteen, the Good Samaritan, Luke ten thirty to thirty seven. These and many others are pictures hung up in millions of minds. What passages in the greatest masters of expression, men such as Homer. Virgil, Dante, and Shakespeare have secured for themselves such a universal hold on people, or have been felt to be so enduringly fresh and true. Jesus never went far for his illustrations. As a master of painting, with a morsel of chalk or a burnt stick, will make you a face at which you must laugh or weep or wonder, so Jesus took the most common objects and incidents around him sewing a piece of cloth on an old garment, an old bottle bursting, children playing in the marketplace at weddings and funerals, or a house falling during a storm, and turned them into perfect pictures, and made them instruments for conveying immortal truth to the world. No wonder the crowds followed him. Even the simplest people could delight in such pictures, and could at least carry away as a lifelong possession the expression of his ideas, even though it might require the thought of centuries to pierce their crystal-clear depths. Never were their words so simple, yet so profound, so pictorial, yet so absolutely true, 
as the words of Jesus. Such were the qualities of his style. The qualities of the preacher himself have been preserved to us in the criticisms of his hearers, and are revealed in the remaining discourses that the Gospels contain. The most prominent of his qualities in his teaching seems to have been authority. Scripture. The people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Mark 1.22 The first thing that stood out to his hearers was the contrast between his words and the preaching that they were used to hearing from the scribes in the synagogues. These were the defenders of the deadest and driest system of theology that has ever passed in any age for religion. Instead of expounding the scriptures which were in their hands, and which would have given living power to their words, the scribes promoted the opinions of commentators, and they were afraid to support any statement unless it was backed by the authority of some master. Instead of dwelling on the great themes of justice, mercy, love, and God, they tortured the sacred text into a ceremonial manual. They preached on the proper breadth of phylacteries, the proper postures for prayer, the proper length of fasts, the distance that could be walked on the Sabbath, and so forth, for the religion of the time consisted in these things. In order to see something in more modern times that resembles the preaching that then prevailed, we can go back to the Reformation period, when, as the historian of John Knox tells us, the lectures delivered by the monks were empty, ridiculous, and wretched in the extreme. Legendary tales concerning the founder of some religious order, the miracles he performed, his combats with the devil, his watchings, fastings, flagellations, the virtues of holy water, chrism, crossing and exorcism, the horrors of purgatory, and the numbers released from it by the intercessions of some powerful saint. These, with low jests, table talk, and fireside scandal, formed the favorite topics of the preachers, and were served up to the people instead of the pure, salutary, and sublime doctrines of the Bible. The contrast that the Scottish people felt four and a half centuries ago between such lectures and the noble words of George Wishart and John Knox may convey to our mind as good an idea as can be had of the effect of the preaching of Jesus on his contemporaries. He knew nothing of the authority of masters and schools of interpretation, but he spoke as one whose own eyes had gazed on the objects of the eternal world. He did not need anyone to tell him of God or of man, for he knew both perfectly. He was possessed with a sense of a mission that drove him on and communicated earnestness in his every word and gesture. He knew that he had been sent from God, and the words he spoke were not his own, but God's. Jesus did not hesitate to tell those who neglected his words that in the judgment they would be condemned by the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, who had listened to Jonah and Solomon, for they were hearing one greater than any prophet or king of earlier times. Luke 11:29-32. He warned them that their future happiness or anguish would depend on their acceptance or rejection of the message he proclaimed. This was the tone of earnestness 
majesty, and authority that struck his hearers with awe. Another quality that the people observed in him was boldness. Lo, he speaketh boldly. John 7:26. This appeared even more wonderful because he was an uneducated man who had not attended the schools of Jerusalem or received the official approval of any earthly authority. However, this quality came from the same source as his authoritativeness. Timidity usually springs from self-consciousness. The teacher who is afraid of his audience and admires the famous and the great is thinking of himself and of what will be said of his performance. However, he who feels himself driven on by a divine mission forgets himself. All audiences are the same to him, no matter who is there. He is thinking only of the message he has to deliver. Jesus was always looking the spiritual and eternal realities in the face. The charm of their greatness held him, and all human distinctions disappeared in their presence. People of every class were only people to him. He was carried along on the torrent of his mission, and what might happen to himself could not make him stop to question or flinch. He discovered his boldness predominantly in attacking the abuses and ideals of the time. It would be a complete mistake to think of him as all mildness and meekness. There is hardly any aspect more conspicuous in his words than a strain of fierce indignation. It was an age of shams above almost any that have ever been. They occupied all high places. They paraded themselves in social life, occupied the chairs of learning, and above all debased every part of religion. Hypocrisy had become so universal that it had ceased even to doubt itself. The ideals of the people were utterly low and mistaken. One can feel an indignation against all this throbbing through his words, from first to last, which had begun with his earliest observation in Nazareth and had ripened with his increasing knowledge of the times. He boldly asserted that the things that were highly esteemed among men were abomination in the sight of God. Luke 16:15. Never in the history of speech was there an argument so scathing, so annihilating, as his was against the notable characters, the scribe, the Pharisee, the priest, and the Levite, to whom the reverence of the multitude had been paid before his devastating words fell on them. A third quality that his hearers observed was power. His word was with power. Luke 4:32. This was the result of that unction of the Holy One, without which even the most solemn truths fall on the ear without effect. Jesus was filled with a spirit without measure, Therefore the truth possessed him. It burned and swelled in his own heart, and he proclaimed it from heart to heart. He did not just have the Spirit in such a degree as to fill himself, but he had the Spirit in such a degree that he was able to impart the Spirit to others. The Spirit overflowed with his words and seized the souls of his hearers, filling the mind and the heart with passion. A fourth quality that was observed in his preaching, and it was certainly a very prominent one, was graciousness. 
Scripture. They wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Luke 4.22 Despite his tone of authority and his fearless and scathing attacks on the times, everything Jesus said was diffused with a glow of grace and love. His character especially spoke here. How could he, who was the incarnation of love, prevent the glow and warmth of the heavenly fire that dwelt in him from spreading over his words? The scribes of the time were hard, proud, and loveless. They flattered the rich and honored the educated. But of the great majority of their hearers, they said, This people, which knoweth not the law, are cursed. John 7, 49. To Jesus, though, every soul was infinitely precious. It did not matter what humble clothing or social deformity the pearl was hidden under. It did not even matter beneath what rubbish and filth of sin it was buried beneath. Jesus never missed it for a moment. Therefore, he spoke to his hearers of every condition and situation with the same respect. Certainly, it was the divine love itself uttering itself from the innermost depth of the divine being that spoke in the parables of Luke 15. These were some of the qualities of the preacher. One more can be mentioned, and this one can be said to embrace all the rest. It is possibly the highest quality of public speech. Jesus addressed people as people, and not as members of any class or possessors of any specific culture. The differences that divide people, such as wealth, power, and education, are on the surface. The qualities in which they are all alike, the broad sense of the understanding, the great passions of the heart, and the primary instincts of the conscience, are profound. These are not the same in all people, of course. In some, they are deeper, and in others, they are shallower. But in all people, they are far deeper than anything else. He who addresses them appeals to the deepest part in his hearers. He will be equally understandable to all. Every hearer will receive his own portion from him. The small and shallow mind will get as much as it can take, and the largest and deepest will get its fill at the same feast. This is why the words of Jesus are perennial in their freshness. They are for all generations, and they are equally for all. They appeal to the deepest elements in human nature today in America, or England, or China, as much as they did in Israel when they were spoken. When we come to inquire what topics the preaching of Jesus consisted of, we might naturally expect to find him expounding the system of doctrine that we ourselves are acquainted with in the forms of something like a catechism or a confession of faith. However, what we find is very different. Jesus did not make use of any system of doctrine. We can hardly doubt that all the many and different ideas of his preaching, as well as those that he never expressed, existed in his mind together as one body of rounded truth, but that is not how they existed in his teaching. He did not use theological terms. He did not speak of the Trinity, of predestination, or of effectual calling. 
although his words support the ideas that these terms convey, and it is the undoubted task of science to bring them forth. Instead, Jesus spoke in the language of life, and he concentrated his preaching on a few burning points that touched the heart, the conscience, and the time. The central idea and the most common phrase of his teaching was the kingdom of God. For example, Matthew 6, 33, 12, 28, 19, 24, and 21, 43. Many of his parables begin with, The kingdom of heaven is like. For example, Matthew 13, 31 to 52, and 21 to 2. Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. Luke 4:43, thereby characterizing the matter of his preaching. In the same way, he sent forth the apostles to preach the kingdom of God. Luke 9, 2. He did not invent the phrase. It was a historical one handed down from the past and was common in the mouths of his contemporaries. John the Baptist had made much use of it, the central theme of his message being, The kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1, 15. What did it signify? It signified the new era that the prophets had predicted and the saints had looked for. Jesus announced that it had come and that he had brought it. The time of waiting was fulfilled. Many prophets and righteous men, he told his contemporaries, had desired to see the things that they saw, but had not seen them. Matthew 13.17 and Luke 10.24 He declared that the privileges and glories of the new time were so great that the least partaker of them was greater than John the Baptist, even though he had been the greatest representative of the old time. Matthew 11. 11. This was what his contemporaries would have expected to hear if they had recognized that the kingdom of God was really come. But they looked around and asked where the new era was that Jesus said he had brought. This is where he and they were at complete variance. They emphasized the first part of the phrase, the kingdom, while he emphasized the second, of God. They expected the new era to appear in magnificent physical forms, in a kingdom of which God indeed was to be the ruler, but which was to show itself in worldly splendor, in force of arms, and as a universal empire. Jesus saw the new era as an empire of God over the loving heart and the obedient will. They looked for it outside. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. Luke seventeen twenty one. They looked for a period of external glory and happiness, while Jesus placed the glory and blessedness of the new time in character. This is why he began his Sermon on the Mount, that great manifesto of the new era, with a series of blessings, Matthew 5, 1-12. The blessedness, though, was entirely that of character, and it was a character totally different from that which was then looked up to as imparting glory and happiness to its possessor, that of the proud Pharisee, the wealthy Sadducee, or the educated scribe. 
Blessed, said he, are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The main gist of his preaching was to set forth this understanding of the kingdom of God, the character of its members, their blessedness in the love and communion of their Father in heaven, and their prospects in the glory of the future world. Jesus showed the contrast between it and the formal religion of the time, with its lack of spirituality and its substitution of ceremonial observances for character. Jesus invited all groups of people into the kingdom. He invited the rich, as in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, by showing the emptiness and danger of seeking their blessedness in wealth. He invited the poor, by impressing upon them the sense of their dignity, persuading them with the most overflowing affection and winning words that the only true wealth was in character, assuring them that if they sought first the kingdom of God, their heavenly Father, who fed the ravens and clothed the lilies, would not allow them to be in need. Matthew six twenty-five to 34 The center and soul of his preaching, though, was himself. He contained within himself the new era. He not only announced it, but he created it. The new character that made people subjects of the kingdom and sharers of its privileges was to be obtained from him alone. Therefore, the practical issue of every discourse of Christ was the command to come to him, to learn of him, and to follow him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, was the key note, the deepest and final word of all his discourses. Matthew 11, 28 It is impossible to read the discourses of Jesus without noticing that as wonderful as they are, some of the most characteristic doctrines of Christianity, as set forth in the epistles of Paul, and now cherished in the minds of the most devoted and enlightened Christians, hold a very inconsiderable place in them. This is especially the case in regard to the great doctrines of the gospel, as to how a sinner is reconciled to God, and how, in a pardoned soul, the character is gradually produced that makes it like Christ and pleasing to the Father. The lack of reference to such doctrines may indeed be much exaggerated, since there is not one prominent doctrine of the great apostle in which the beginnings are not to be found in the teaching of Christ himself. Yet the contrast is distinct enough to have given some pretense for denying that the distinctive doctrines of Paul are genuine elements of Christianity. The true explanation of the phenomenon, though, is very different. Jesus was not a mere teacher. His character was greater than his words, as was his work. The main part of that work was to atone for the sins of the world by his death on the cross. His closest followers never really believed that he was to die, though, and until his death occurred, it was impossible to explain its far-reaching significance. Paul's most distinctive doctrines are merely expositions of the meaning of two great facts, the death of Christ and the mission of the Spirit by the glorified Redeemer. 
It is obvious that these facts could not be fully explained in the words of Jesus himself when they had not yet taken place. But to suppress the inspired explanation of them would be to extinguish the light of the gospel and rob Christ of his crowning glory. The audience of Jesus varied greatly, both in size and character, on different occasions. Very frequently, it was a great multitude. He addressed them everywhere, on the mountain, on the seashore, on the highway, in the synagogues, and in the temple courts. He was also quite willing to speak with a single individual, however lowly. He took advantage of every opportunity of doing so. Although he was worn out with fatigue, he talked to the woman at the well. John 4, 6-42 He received Nicodemus alone. John 3, 1-21 He taught Mary in her home. Luke 10, 38-42 There are about 19 such private conversations mentioned in the Gospels. They leave a memorable example to his followers. This is probably the most effective of all forms of instruction, as it is certainly the best test of earnestness. A man who preaches to thousands with enthusiasm might be a mere orator, but the person who seeks the opportunity of speaking closely to individuals of the welfare of their souls must have a real fire from heaven burning in his heart. His audience often consisted of the circle of his disciples. His preaching divided his hearers. He includes himself in such parables as the sower, Matthew 13, 3-9, the tares and the wheat, Matthew 13, 24-30, and 36-43, and the wedding feast, Matthew 22, 1-14, which described its effects on different classes with unequaled vividness. Jesus' teaching utterly repelled some people. Others heard it with wonder, without being touched in the heart. Others were affected for a time, but soon returned to their old interests. It is awful to think how few there were, even when the Son of God was preaching, who heard unto salvation. Those who did so gradually formed around him a body of disciples. They followed him around, hearing all his discourses, and he often spoke to them alone. Such were the five hundred to whom he appeared in Galilee after his resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15.6. Some of them were women, such as Mary Magdalene, Susanna, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, who, being wealthy, gladly supplied his few simple needs. To these disciples he gave a more thorough instruction than to the crowd. He explained to them in private whatever they did not understand in his public teaching. More than once he made the statement that he spoke in parables to the multitudes, so that, though hearing, they might not understand. Matthew 13, 10-17 This could only mean that those who had no real interest in the truth were sent away with a mere beautiful shell, but no understanding. To those who had a spiritual thirst for more, Jesus gladly communicated the hidden secret. When the nation as a whole declared itself unworthy of being the channel of the Messiah's worldwide influence, these disciples became the nucleus of that spiritual society, elevated above all local limitations and distinctions of rank and nationality, 
in which the spirit and doctrine of Christ were to be spread and perpetuated throughout the world. The Apostles Perhaps the formation of the group known as the Apostles should be placed side by side with miracles and preaching as a third means by which Jesus did his work. The men who became the twelve apostles were at first only ordinary disciples like many others. This, at least, was the position of those who were already his followers during the first year of his ministry. At the opening of his Galilean activity, their attachment to him entered on a second stage, when he called them to give up their ordinary employments and be with him constantly. It was probably not many weeks later that he promoted them to the third and final stage of nearness to himself by ordaining them to be apostles. Luke 6, 13. When his work grew so extensive and demanding that it was quite impossible for him to keep up with it all, he multiplied himself, so to speak, by appointing his disciples to be his assistants. He commissioned them to teach the simpler elements of his doctrine and conferred on them miraculous powers similar to his own. Matthew 10, 5-15 In this way, many towns were evangelized that he did not have time to visit, and many people were cured who could not have been brought into contact with him. However, as future events proved, his purposes in appointing them were much more far-reaching. His work was for all time and for the whole world. It could not be accomplished in a single lifetime. He foresaw this and made provision for it by the early choice of representatives who could take up his plans after he was gone, and in whom he could still extend his influence over mankind. He did not write any of the scriptures himself. We might think that writing would have been the best way of perpetuating his influence and giving the world a perfect image of himself. And we cannot help imagining with a glimmer of strong desire what a volume penned by his hand would have been. However, for wise reasons he abstained from this kind of work and resolved to live after death in the lives of chosen men and women. It is surprising to see what sort of people Jesus selected for such an important role. They did not belong to the influential and educated classes. No doubt the heads and leaders of the nation should have been the mouthpieces of their Messiah. But they proved themselves totally unworthy of the great vocation. He was able to do without them. He did not need the influence of worldly power and wisdom. Always wanting to work with the elements of character that are not limited to any station of life or class of culture, he did not hesitate to commit his cause to twelve men most of whom lacked learning and belonged to the common people. He made the selection after a night spent in prayer. Luke 6, 12 The event showed with what insight into God's will he had acted. The disciples turned out to be instruments entirely qualified for the great plan. Two, at least, John and Peter, were men of supreme gifts, and one of the disciples was a traitor. The choice of Judas will probably, even after all explanations, always remain a very partially explained mystery. Yet the selection of ambassadors who were at first so unlikely, but in the end proved so successful, will always be one of the finest monuments of the incomparable originality of Jesus. 
It would, however, be a very inadequate account of his relation to the Twelve merely to point out the insight with which he discerned in them their potential for their grand future. They became very great men, and in the founding of the Christian Church achieved a work of immeasurable importance. In a sense they little dreamed of, they could be said to sit on thrones ruling the modern world. Matthew 19.28 They stand like a row of noble pillars, towering far across the plains of time. The sunlight that shines on them and makes them visible, though, comes entirely from Him. Jesus gave them all their greatness, and their greatness is one of the most remarkable evidences of His greatness. What must He have been, whose influence imparted to them such magnitude of character and made them ready for such a gigantic task? At first they were rude and earthly in the extreme. What hope was there that they would ever be able to appreciate the intentions of a mind like His, to inherit His work, to possess in any degree a spirit so admirable, and to transmit to future generations a faithful image of His character? However, He educated them with the most affectionate patience, bearing with their unrefined hopes and their clumsy misunderstandings of His meaning. Never forgetting for a moment the part they were to play in the future, he made their training his most constant work. They were much more constantly in his company than even the general body of his disciples, seeing all he did in public and hearing all he said. They were often his only audience, and then he unveiled to them the glories and mysteries of his doctrine sowing in their minds the seeds of truth that time and experience were to cause to bear fruit in time. The most important part of their training, though, was one that might not have been noticed much at the time, although it was producing splendid results, the silent and constant influence of his character on theirs. He drew them to himself and stamped his own image on them. It was this that made them the men they became. For this, more than anything else, the generations of those who love Jesus look back to them with envy. We admire and adore at a distance the qualities of His character. But what must it have been to see them in the unity of life, and for years to feel their shaping and influencing strength? Can we recall with any fullness the features of this character, whose glory they beheld, and under whose power they lived? THE HUMAN CHARACTER OF JESUS The most obvious feature that they would notice in Jesus might have been purposefulness. This certainly is the common note that resounds in all his sayings that have been preserved for us, and it is the pulse that we feel beating in all his recorded actions. He was possessed with a purpose that guided him and drove him on. Most lives aim at nothing in particular but simply drift along under the influence of varying moods and instincts, or on the currents of society, and achieve nothing. But Jesus evidently had a definite object before him that absorbed his thoughts and drew out his energies. He would often give as a reason for not doing something, Mine hour is not yet come. John 2, 4 As if his purpose absorbed every moment and every hour had its own appointed part of the task.
This gave an earnestness and swiftness of execution to his life that most lives generally lack. It saved him, too, from spending energy on details and being meticulous about little things on which those who do not follow any definite call give themselves to completely. This made his life, as various as his activities were, an unbroken unity. Very closely connected with this quality was another prominent one that can be called faith. By this we mean his astonishing confidence in the accomplishment of his purpose and his apparent disregard both of assets and opposition. If it is considered in the most general way how massive his purpose was, to reform his nation and begin an everlasting and worldwide religious movement, if the opposition that he encountered and foresaw that his cause would have to meet at every stage of its progress is considered, and if it is remembered that as a man he was an uneducated Galilean peasant, then his quiet and unwavering confidence in his success will appear only less remarkable than his success itself. After reading the Gospels through, one asks in wonder what Jesus did to produce such a mighty impression on the world. He did not construct any elaborate system to ensure the effect. He did not lay hold of the centers of influence, such as learning, wealth, and government. It is true that he instituted the church, but he left no detailed explanations of its nature or rules for how it was to be managed. This was the simplicity of faith that does not contrive and prepare, but simply goes onward and does the work. It was the quality that he said could remove mountains, and that he especially desired in his followers. Matthew 21, 21. This was the foolishness of the gospel of which Paul boasted, as it was going forth in the resoluteness of power, but with laughable meagerness of devices and resources to overcome the Greek and Roman world. 1 Corinthians 1, 17-25. A third prominent feature of the character of Jesus was originality. Most lives are easily explained. They are mere products of circumstances, and there are thousands of copies like them that surround them or have preceded them. We are each formed by the habits and customs of the country to which we belong, the fashion and tastes of our generation, the traditions of our education, the prejudices of our class, and the opinions of our school or sect. We do work determined for us by an incidental collection of circumstances. Our convictions are ingrained on us by authority from without, instead of growing naturally from within. Our opinions are blown to us in fragments on every wind. What circumstances formed and made the man Christ Jesus, though? There was never an age more dry and barren than that in which he was born. He was like a tall, fresh palm tree springing out of a desert. What was there in the petty life of Nazareth to produce such a gigantic character? How could the notoriously wicked village send forth such breathing purity? Maybe a scribe taught him the alphabet and grammar, but his doctrine was a complete contradiction of all that the scribes taught. The trends of the sects never laid hold of his free spirit. How clearly, amid the sounds that filled the ears of his time, 
he heard the neglected voice of truth, which was quite different from the religious leaders. How clearly, behind all the pretentious and accepted forms of religion, he saw the lovely and neglected figure of real godliness. He cannot be explained by anything that was in the world that could have shaped him. He grew from within. Instead of allowing his vision to be informed by what others had said they saw, he directed his eyes straight to the facts of nature and life and believed what he himself saw. He was equally loyal to the truth in his words. He went forth and proclaimed what he believed without hesitation, although it shook the institutions, the creeds, and customs of his country to their foundations and it loosened the opinions of the common people in a hundred points in which they had been educated. It may indeed be said that although the Jewish nation of Jesus' own time was an utterly dry ground, out of which no green and great thing could be expected to grow, he reverted to the earlier history of his nation, and nourished his mind on the ideas of Moses and the prophets. There is some truth in this. But affectionate and constant as his familiarity was with them, he handled them with a free and fearless hand. He redeemed them from themselves and demonstrated in maturity the ideas that they taught only in seed form. What a contrast between the covenant God of Israel and the Father in heaven whom he revealed! What a difference between the temple with its priests and bloody sacrifices and the worship in spirit and in truth. What a difference between the national and ceremonial morality of the law and the morality of the conscience and the heart. Even in comparison with the figures of Moses, Elijah, and Isaiah, Jesus towers over others in originality. A fourth and very glorious feature of his character was his love for his Father and for people, it has already been said that he was consumed with an overmastering purpose. There must be a great passion beneath a great life purpose that shapes and sustains it. Love for God and others was the passion that directed and inspired Jesus. We have not been informed with any detail how the love for individuals sprang up and grew in the seclusion of Nazareth and on what materials it fed. We only know that when Jesus appeared in public, it was a leading passion that completely swallowed up self-love, filled him with limitless compassion for human despair, and enabled him to go forward without once looking back in the business to which he devoted himself. We know only in general that it drew its support from the understanding he had of the infinite value of the human soul. It surpassed all the limits that other people have to put to their compassion. Differences of class and nationality usually moderate people's interest in each other. In nearly all countries, it has been considered a virtue to hate one's enemies. It is generally agreed to despise and avoid those who have defiled the laws of respectability. However, Jesus paid no attention to these practices. The overpowering sense of the preciousness that he perceived in enemy, foreigner, and outcast alike prevented him from doing so. This marvelous love shaped the purpose of his life. It gave him the most tender and intense empathy 
with every form of pain and misery. It was his deepest reason for healing others. His merciful heart drew him wherever help was most needed. His love especially induced him to save the soul. He knew this was the real jewel. He understood that everything should be done to rescue the soul and that its miseries and perils were the most dangerous of all. Some people have loved others without this fundamental purpose. But the love of Jesus was directed by wisdom to the truest happiness of those he loved. He knew he was doing his very best for them when he was saving them from their sins. The crowning attribute of Jesus' human character was love to God. It is the greatest honor and achievement of man to be one with God in feeling, thought, and purpose. Jesus had this in perfection. It is very difficult for us to realize God. The great majority of people hardly think about Him at all, and even the godliest confess that it takes much effort to discipline their minds into the habit of constantly realizing Him. When we do think of Him, it is with a painful sense of a disharmony between what is in us and what is in Him. We cannot remain, even for a few minutes, in His presence without the sense in greater or less degree, that his thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are his ways our ways. Isaiah 55, 8-9 It was not this way with Jesus. He always realized God. He never spent an hour and never did anything without direct reference to God. God was around him like the air he breathed or the sunlight in which he walked. His thoughts were God's thoughts. His desires were never in the least different from God's. His purpose, he was perfectly sure, was God's purpose for him. How did he attain this absolute harmony with God? To a large extent, it must be attributed to the perfect harmony of his nature within itself. Yet in some measure he got it by the same means by which we laboriously seek it, by studying God's thoughts and purposes in his word which from his childhood was his constant delight. By cultivating the habit of prayer his entire life, for which he found time even when he did not have time to eat, and by patiently resisting temptations to entertain thoughts and purposes of his own that were different from God's. These are the things that gave him such faith and fearlessness in his work. He knew that the call to do it had come from God, and he knew that he was immortal until it was done. This was what made him, with all his self-consciousness and originality, the pattern of meekness and submission, for he was forever bringing every thought and wish into obedience to his Father's will. This was the secret of the peace and majestic calmness that imparted such a stateliness to his demeanor in the most difficult hours of life. He knew that the worst that could happen to him was his father's will for him, and that was enough. He always had near him a retreat of perfect rest, silence, and sunshine, into which he could find refuge from the clamor and confusion around him. This was the great secret he passed on to his followers when he said to them at his departure, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. John 14, 
27. The sinlessness of Jesus has been often discussed as the crowning attribute of his character. The scriptures, which so clearly record the sins of their very greatest heroes, such as Abraham and Moses, have no sins of his to record. There is no more prominent characteristic of the saints of antiquity than their repentance. The more eminently saintly they were, the more abundant and bitter were their tears and lamentations over their sinfulness. However, although it is acknowledged by all that Jesus was the supreme religious figure of history, he never demonstrated this characteristic of saintliness. He confessed no sin. Is this not because he had no sin to confess? Yet the idea of sinlessness is too negative to express the perfection of his character. He was sinless, but he was sinless because he was completely full of love. Sin against God is merely the expression of lack of love to God. And sin against man is simply because of lack of love to man. Someone full of love to both God and man cannot possibly sin against either. This fullness of love to his Father and his fellow men, governing every aspect of his being, constituted the perfection of his character. The twelve apostles owed all they became to the impression produced on them by their long-continued contact with their Master. We cannot determine with certainty at what precise time they began to realize the central truth of the Christianity they were later to publish to the world, that behind the tenderness and majesty of this human character, there was in Jesus something still more noble, or by what stages their impressions matured to the full conviction that in Christ Jesus perfect manhood was in union with perfect deity. This was the goal of all the revelations of himself that he made to them. But the breakdown of their faith at his death shows how immature up until that time their convictions must have been in regard to his personality, however worthily they were able, in certain pleasant hours, to express their faith in him. It was the experience of the resurrection and ascension that gave to the shifting impressions, which had long been accumulating in their minds, the touch by which they were made to solidify into the immovable conviction that in him, with whom it had been granted to them to associate so intimately, God was manifest in the flesh.